You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300 house races are non-competitive. If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway. People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us. But you were bringing up, you know, Angel Hernandez umpires. I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to segue into sports. And for those of y'all that, you know, are looking forward to our sports commentary, congratulations, you've made it. Best news that we've both heard in the last couple of days, because we were talking about this last week. Dana Brown, the new Astros general manager, has engaged Kyle Tucker on extension talks. So question here for both of us. How serious are you taking those talks? And, you know, if there were an extension, what do you think it would look like? So I'll start off. I I think the talks are serious. Uh, Arbitration process started today. The Astros and Kyle Tucker are like $2.5 million apart um, in terms of Kyle Tucker is asking uh, 7.5 and the Astros are offering 5. I think... That alone makes it a very serious negotiation coming up because that's such a big gap. Someone's the odds are it's not going to go in Kyle Tucker's favor. You know, if you look at the comps, uh, someone with his comp and his years like Mookie Betts, who's making like five point eight million dollars this year, and so to to then say okay, or sorry, Mookie Betts was making five point eight in that year. Uh, of his career putting up those numbers, right? So when you look at that, and that's typically how arbitration works, right? They look for similar comps. This player did something similar. He was compensated at this. That's what you should be. So looking at all those numbers, the odds are, at least in my opinion, that Kyle Tucker is going to end up pretty disappointed with the arbitration process. And I don't think you want to let someone who is a cornerstone of your franchise over the next 10 years possibly be upset with you and and be frustrated. So, you know, when, when that situation arises, it's time to, it's time to take that conversation a little more seriously. So now when it comes time to talk about the numbers, uh, I I think Kyle's a $30 million a year guy. I really do. And so when you look at the typical length of a, of a Jim Crane contract, since he's taken over the team, I think you have to throw Altuve out, and Bregman out as outliers, because I think Bregman signed like an eight-year deal and Altuve signed a 10-year deal. But other than that, everything is two, maybe four. If you're really, really good, you get six. And so I think when you look at Kyle's age and what he brings offensively, defensively, and as a base runner, I think the number should be around six for 180. That's that's where I kind of have him as a $30 million a year guy for, for six years, which is kind of the max that it seems like Jim Crane is, is willing to give is out. Where, you know, I was thinking about this, and I, and I remember last week you said six to 180. 
And so I'm, my number would be jumping off that point. I would just alter it a little and I would say, here's what we're going to do. You want seven and a half million this year. You got it. You win. And then we'll pay you the six years after the season. Now, what does that do for you? Well, that makes your 2023 payroll, you know, a little lower, you know, and, and probably, you know, because I think Jordan's contract is going to escalate as time goes on. I was going to point out that uh, Altuve's deal was a five-year deal because he's actually up after 2024. Uh, okay. Bregman's was a little bit longer, but Bregman's kind of was structured. Bregman was yeah. young, though. Bregman was 22, 23 when he signed that deal, was- so... You were buying out the arbitration. It's a little bit different because you were buying out all of the arbitration years for Bregman early on in his career before he, you know, he took a discount, right? He took it at twenty million a year early in his career to buy out that arbitration. Versus if Bregman goes through all those arbitration years, now he's a thirty million dollar a year guy, and I, and I don't think he signs as yeah, long of a it, deal. Okay, now, okay, I'm back. Sorry, folks. Um, when Bregman signed his deal early on, we, that was in the what, what we call, like to call the slave labor part of a person's uh, contract. The first right. Before you have any arbitration years and you're just going off of, you know, player year, yearly increases based on your service time. Yeah, and, you're and making your a contract. measly 500000 or $750,000. I mean, all of us should really be so, uh, so put on upon, you know, to make that little bit amount of money. But he signs a deal that gives him like maybe four or five million dollars in those years. So, you know, you're looking at it from the Astros end, you're getting a great player for four or five million dollars in those years. And if you're looking from Breckin's standpoint, it's like, damn, I would have been making seven fifty K. Now I'm making five million dollars. I mean that's you know, that's good for me. And so that's where I would go with Tucker. Because and, and this is the point that I did not make last week but is a point that I've made numerous times in other writings that I've done is that I am normally a nuts and bolts guy. Like when you talked about, then some people sit there and say, do you want Yuli back? And it's like, I love Yuli Gurriel. Don't need him. He, he was just, I mean, last year as a hitter, it was just, it, it, it was painful to watch. But the thing is, there's a few players on your team as, as you come up, Bagwell and Biggio were those kinds of players. Retired as Astros, they're cornerstone players. They're players that grow your brand. Because when you look at it in the future, and I guarantee it, when we start talking to our older kids, our grandkids, we're going to be comparing any second baseman that comes up to Craig Biggio and Jose Altuve. We're going to see like, okay. See, I even think, I even think as our you know, as this generation gets older, it's it's just going to be to Altuve. I, I don't think a lot of Astro fans, when all things are said and done, will have Biggio anywhere I'll near invite, Altuve. And, and, and for those people who think that, I will invite you to go to Baseball Reference. And I want you... I, uh, I, I know Biggio's... Like, I was there for his Hall of Fame introduction. Uh, I want people, and, and this is just for our listeners... Look at his 97, 98, and 99 season. Just look at the numbers that he put up. Now, granted, 
baseball's offensive numbers were exploding back then. I mean, this is during the steroid era. I don't think he used steroids, but he is the first guy since Tris Speaker to hit 50 doubles and steal 50 bags in a year. Tris Speaker played back in the 20s. I mean, so we're talking a long time. So when people look at Biggio, and I think it, it kind of depends on the age that you were. I remember him because he was coming of age when I was younger in the 90s. Some people who are older remember him post his ACL tear in 2000. are looking at him like, gee, you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he hit doubles and he got hit a lot, but, uh, you know, and, and that's fair. That's all part of the thing that's baked in. But my point is, is that all these other original 16 franchises, the original eight in each league, all of them have players in their history that people from multiple generations can sit there and go, oh, wow, this guy was great. Like if you're a Cardinals fan, you're comparing Albert Pujols to Stan Musial. And, you know, and, and I don't know how you lose in, that, in, in either, one, either side of that argument. And so when you're an Astros fan, you want more of those guys. Kyle Tucker can be one of those guys. If he signs, a, you know, if you count this year and he signs what it would be a seven-year contract, he is going to play more than 10 seasons. And if he's averaging four or five wins a year conservatively, he is darn near a Hall of Fame right fielder. We've never had a Hall of Fame right fielder in our history. I mean, the best right fielders I can think of, Kevin Bass, uh, Eric Anthony for like a year, Derek Bell. See, I feel like with the Astros, right field's been a position of one, maybe two good years, and then you fall off. Cause I think of you know like a Richard Hidalgo, who came out of nowhere, had a couple great seasons, signed a big contract, and then and then disappeared. Uh, I remember Derek Bell uh, in the early days, the Killer Bees had a couple real nice seasons, and then he hit a slump that he could never come out of. It, it, it's crazy, but I I think at, at this point, when you're looking at best right fielders, it might be yeah, perfect. and that's yeah. I mean, I and he didn't even he wasn't even a full time right fielder. I mean, but I can't argue with that. I think it. It's tough. We've never really, as you said, we've never had a good right field, a great right fielder. I think during the World Series run, uh, Reddick played great baseball. But then again, look at him drop off the next year. We've just never, before Kyle Tucker, uh, at least in my time period, you know, maybe the Cesar Cedeno's or the the Toy Cannons out there played it differently. But I can't remember just a time where go ahead and pencil in right field every day and know it was going to dominate because. It hasn't been the case. It's been a revolving door for the most part. I mean, you can count Berkman out there, but that was a that was a first baseman playing right field, center field, left field, everywhere but his actual position. Um, and it's it's you're right. We don't have that that cornerstone outfielder really, let alone great, right field. Great one in Astros history, uh, and it was the expansion draft uh, where we had Hidalgo, and this was before actually his 2000 season. Um, this was before he actually solidified himself. We had to choose between Richard Hidalgo and Bobby Abreu. And who did we choose? We chose Hidalgo, which if you, if you want to base it on his 2000 season, I don't know if Abreu had any years that necessarily were as great as the quote-unquote numbers that Hidalgo put up that year. But, you yeah. know, Abreu was an on-base machine, you know, playing for the... One of the greatest home run derby 
performances I've ever seen in my life was was Bobby Abreu. He was never the same hitter after that home run derby, but uh, him in that Phillies jersey, I, I still remember him just hitting bomb after bomb I after know what, bomb. I want to say, I think home run derby, the golf equivalent, have you ever found yourself like just lost for the two or three rounds after you play a scramble? Can I, I mean, to be completely honest with you, no, but I can, I, that's just because me personally, my role in the scramble is to typically carry the team. Uh, I, again, not trying to, to, to brag or anything like that, but typically I'm the guy who hits fourth after three bad shots in front of you have happened. And it's my job to to kind of save the team a little bit, but I, I do get the analogy there that and almost like a long drive contest kind of thing, right? Where you're screwing up your swing, Bryson DeChambeau style, to hit it as far as you possibly can. Yeah, and can. I think there was one year my sister was the head volleyball coach at Clear Lake High School for a while, and so she used to run a tournament at Bay Oaks, and so the team that I was on was me and my three uncles, who at the time were. Probably the best one was maybe like a 25-30 handicap. The best one. So I'm there carrying my eight at the time. I am the A, B, and C golfer with three Ds. And the funniest story is that, you know, we've got, we pull up to, you know, the, the par three, which is number, uh, number, no, three? Back nine, number 14. So okay. like a little dog lake, you know, elementary dog lake par three, right? So my uncle, he hits a screamer that's about two inches off the ground. Pop! Hits those stone tee markers. Bounces clear across the, you know, the, the tee box goes back and misses a plate glass window by an inch. Bounces off the side of the pool bounces back on the tee box. And I'm sitting there thinking of that homeowner, if his plate glass window had been broken, and he's sitting there thinking, I bought my house behind the hole. How in the hell? But, you know, that's that's kind of what, you know. And so what am I doing doing that round? I mean, I know I've got to hit it out 250 minimum in the fairway. So I'm sitting there, I'm buckling my belt, doing all kinds of crap. And then, you know, the next few rounds, I mean, I find my, my swing's all, you know, jacked up you know, after that. Nowadays, I can't hit the ball barely 200 yards. So, I mean, that, that's not me. My job on a scramble team is to be the first guy that knocks it in the fairway that lets the long hitters, you know, unbuckle their, you know, their belt and, and go after it. But point is, yeah, home run derby, you kind of worry about that because I, I know Jordan's probably going to be going, um, going to be probably a fixture in that. Uh, over the next several years. Um, and you always worry about that. You worry about, you know, a guy, because, you know, Jordan's, yeah, he's got tons of raw power, but he's a damn good hitter. And you don't want him yeah. to lose, you know, you know whatever that is, just so he can, you know, win some kind of mythical trophy that says I, I can hit home runs. I think Jordan might be particularly well suited for the home run derby because he has so much raw power that I think he could just take his regular batting practice hacks and and be just fine and probably win the event. I, I think back when I was a kid, uh, Garrett Anderson 
when he was with the Angels, won a home run derby. And if you want to make a golf comparison, it was like watching Ernie Els swing the golf club, where you feel like really not putting a lot of effort into this, but just the flick of the wrist power that this guy had. Everything was barely scraping over the wall. I mean, if it was a if it was three ten to left, Garrett was sitting at three twelve. But they count all the same. And I and I kind of see something similar with your Don, where I don't think he'd have to change his swing too much. I think he has so much raw natural ability and raw power, and he's just such a strong guy. I would at least optimistically think that just regular batting practice hacks would be good enough. He doesn't have to try and elevate yeah, and that's the ball. Where I- I like Tucker's game. We've been talking about Tucker a long time. And the thing I like about Tucker is he, he can find a number of different ways to beat you. And that's the, and that's the, the mark of a great player because every player is going to go through periods where they're just not hitting the ball. I mean, it happens. Um, for Tucker, it's usually April. I don't know why, but that's, that's when it is for him. But, can you impact the game in a positive way even when you're not hitting? That was the thing that I always loved about Bagwell uh, because Bagwell was a, a great fielding first baseman, uh, underrated in a lot of ways. When he got on base, he was probably the best single base runner I've ever seen. Yeah, he was such a good base runner, such a smart base a runner. And, and, and just, it, was, it was amazing. But the thing is, is that, and that's why I like guys like Tucker and why I want to you know, pay guys like him. Because you know the thing was with Jordan, if Jordan's not hitting, what is he doing? He's, a, I think he, I do agree with you. He's a better left fielder than advertised. I mean, in particular, I think what we're going to see is teams are not going to run on him like they ran on him last year. But but he's not he's not Kyle Tucker as far as the best left fielder. The Kyle Tucker is a Gold Glove winner, which means theoretically he's the best defensive right fielder in baseball. If he's not hitting, he still will rob a homer a week, it feels like sometimes. And so you're not going to get that from Jordan. You're not going to – if he's not hitting, you're not getting what you paid for versus with Tucker, you're not getting part of what you paid for, but he's still going to steal 30 bags. He's still going to um, play an elite level of defense for and you I as well. I wonder about that. You know, I wonder about teams and because and, everybody – and you've seen hitting charts, you know, uh, heat maps and things like that. Where, you know, and I remember when the Astros signed uh, Preston Wilson years ago. I don't know if you remember him. But yeah, he was, after we lost the World Series, he was uh, the big move that we made coming over from the Colorado Papura, Rockies. And Papura, uh, and yeah, Papura showed this map of the balls that he hit, and they would have been home runs in Minute Maid Park, and how many home runs he would have hit. One of the things I wonder about with Tucker is you've got that short right field wall. How many home runs does he steal in Minute Maid Park that he wouldn't in other ballparks with a taller fence? You know, because that's that's part of his game. Is part of his game is is timing. You know, a lot of times he's able to do it without jumping because he's got those long arms. You know, he's fairly lanky, fairly lanky, so he can just reach up, boom, gone. But you know, he also times his jumps well, and so that's you know. You know, that's what it is what it is. And so, you know, you have to wonder if you're a team that has like that high wall. Uh, so I want to shift gears. I'm going to ask two questions um, and, and we can take these in any order. Um, I was just looking up some scores uh, during our break. Uh, the Houston Rockets uh, 
with a stellar defensive effort, uh, lost to the Sacramento Kings by only 130 to 128. They gave up only 130 points tonight. So um, a bit of an effort there. So, so I, I guess the question would be, where are you with this team? And are you, do you even care at this point? It's really sad because I think the James Harden years were some of my favorite times as a Rockets fan. And even though they didn't end up with the rings or the titles, Rockets basketball was must-watch television on a nightly basis. I can't think of one full Rockets game that I've watched since we traded James Harden. And I've tried. I, I've tried. I have tried to find ways to be excited about the young rookies that we have. I've tried to find ways to be excited about Steven Silas. And and I just can't do it. This This team is it's an abomination right now and i think you know john wall was on i can't remember the the podcast the other day but he he talked about his time in houston and you know one of the things that he talked about was was the time when he was told he was going to be coming off the bench and you know he wasn't going to be getting minutes because of jaylee green and, and kevin porter jr and he mentioned to those guys you know if you acted the way that you do here for any other team in the league, you wouldn't get minutes. You wouldn't be on the court if you acted the way that you're acting. And so I just don't care anymore. And that's that's where I'm at because I think the Rockets front office and ownership has shown they don't care. When you look at how James Harden was handled in Houston, he could do whatever he wanted as long as he showed up and put up numbers. I... I when I was at UH, one of the Rockets ball boys was in my class. And listening to him talk about nights at the strip club with James Harden and Dwight Howard, I mean, it sounded like a great time. Guys had fun out there. But they did that every night. Harden went out every single night. And then he balled. So we didn't really care. But now we have the same approach with these young guys. There's no discipline. There's no continuity. They don't play defense. And again, it seems like Tillman, where's Tillman? Doesn't care. And and for that reason, I don't want to say I'm not a Rockets fan, because I'll always be a Rockets fan. I'll always root for the Rockets. But until they give me a reason to care again, I I really don't. And, and at this point, when it comes to basketball in the city of Houston, the team that I really care about are the Houston Cougars. That's for me. That's Houston basketball. I am. I'm not done on the Rockets, but I'm tuned out, and I'm all in on on the Houston Cougars because that team represents the city of Houston much better than the Houston Rockets. Yeah, do. it's kind of sad to me. I remember years ago. Um, this would have been, I guess, 2012, 2013. The Astros hire Bo Porter, and he comes to our Saber meeting. And I'm going to tell you, he is the single most impressive guy I've ever heard coach ever. We've had Phil Garner come to our meetings. We had, you know, Larry, the na- chapters named after Larry Darker. So he's there all the time. Bo Porter, I would run through a wall for that guy. I mean, he was that 
just engaging. He was that smart. The thing is, is that he was hired at the wrong time, and he's probably never going to be a manager again. And to me, that's sad because you know he's a smart baseball guy, and I, I and I don't think personality-wise, he and Steven Silas are similar. It sounds like Silas is Silas is letting anybody do anything, and I don't think that was Bo Porter. But I think coming into this job, I mean, there were a lot of teams that would have hired Steven Silas. I mean, he was an up-and-coming assistant, uh, well thought of. I mean, he was supposedly the brains behind the Mavericks offense, which, you know, was, was pretty revolutionary at the time. But the thing is, is that when you add all this talent together, it just doesn't make sense. All of these guys, you know, are, if you look at them in isolation, look like good players. I mean, Kevin Porter Jr. puts up decent numbers. Jalen Green tonight throws down 41 points. Uh, Sangoon is probably one of the most skilled big men in the game. And uh, Jabari Smith has obviously had a rough year, but, you know, he's he's obviously got talent. So you're looking at this team. You know, Deshaun Tate's decent. Kenya Martin Jr. is decent. You're looking at it, and you're like, why are we the worst team in the league? I don't understand it. How do you have that much talent? It's it's frustrating because I would have loved to seen Stephen Silas and James Harden work together. I think if if James was staying in Houston, Silas was a great hire. I think the offense would have been fantastic to watch. It would have been fun. I think you know he and Westbrook and 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 Harden those three together, Silas Westbrook Harden would have been a nice brain trust. And I think. Um, Harden would have continued to flourish. I don't think you would have seen some of the drop-off that you're seeing now. But when you look at and you're right, we do have, and I say we the Rockets, I, I'm a lifelong Rockets fan, even though some of us got to wear a brown bag over our heads nowadays. Um, but I do think Silas isn't the right fit for this group of guys. And it's specifically, it's part of it's the development part, sure. He's not there to develop these guys. But part of it is, I almost liken it to the Texans in a couple different ways. First and foremost, it's it's like, do you remember when Gary Kubiak would just hit you with that long boot and everybody in the stadium knew the boot was coming third and long, here comes the boot, and everybody knew it was coming. And, no, and, and, and everybody, including the defensive coordinator, knew that the bootleg was coming, and it got stopped because Kubiak's playbook, uh, until he got uh, Kyle Shanahan in there, was, was pretty repetitive. And, and for me, Silas is the same way. You've got a guy in Sangoon who, as you said, one of the most skilled big men in the league, can pass, can shoot, can run the court. They should be running the offense through him. He should touch the ball every time down the court and let him make the decisions with the basketball like uh, like Jokic does with the Nuggets. That's, that's how the Rockets should be running their offense, should be through the post, inside, back out. They don't do that. Then on top of it, it's... Again, it's the David Cully, Lovey Smith with um, Nick Casario in his headset the whole time telling him what to do. And I think Silas has, has that going on as well. I think uh, the general manager, Stone, for the Rockets is really the one leading that ship. I, I think Silas, especially going back to some of John Wall's comments he had in his interview, Silas has very little control of that of that locker room of the game plan uh and especially of the breakdown of minutes i i think silas has handed a list of hey here's who's going to play when today go get it and when you've got something like that going on 
even when it's working at the highest levels, we saw the Astros and Jim Crane and James Click not able to get along. Now you've got it not working. You've got young players who I, I think it's fair to say you're wasting young talent at this point. You know, yes, Jalen Green's only 21 years old, but, you know, I still remember when the Rockets lost the first playoff series um, that we got hardened. We were like a seven or eight seed, and we lost to the um, the Thunder with, with KD and with Westbrook. And I remember after the series was over, Adam Clanton got on the air, and Harden's only 24. We've got so much time with him. We've, we even though we lost this round, he's only 24. We've got so much time. Well, that era got no rings. Harden got no rings. Eventually, time runs out. And so you can't just go, these guys are young, it's okay. If you don't instill good practice habits, good work ethic, what it means to be ready as a professional basketball player, night in and night out, to compete in the NBA, you're wasting these young guys' career. And even though you have all these draft picks coming from the Nets over the next five or six years, if you don't get somebody in there who understands how to develop young players and make them better, you're wasting all of it. I mean, think about the stories players players told when they when they get traded to the Lakers and they had to go play with Kobe for the first time. How do you think anybody on this Rockets team would react to their first Kobe workout? Because I think it'd go about as poorly as you could possibly. Well, imagine. you had um, it, was a, it was Kevin Porter Jr. And Christian, um, how he traded him to Dallas. What was um, what was his name? Seymour, uh, Christian Wood, Wood, who literally, in the middle of a game, walked off the court and went in the locker room and presumably left the whole facility. Just and you know, the next day it's like, oh well, this was unfortunate, but you know, they're young guys, and it's like, no, no. When I was coaching volleyball. The worst, you know, the hardest decisions I had to make was when to kick a kid off the team. And I had to do it a couple of different times because they were, you know, they just broke rules that I couldn't allow them to break. But the thing was, is our team got that much better after that decision was made because the whole thing was, and, and unfortunately in my career, I, I coached a lot of losing teams because I was a volleyball coach at Galveston Ball. You know, they hadn't won a district match and, God knows, 40 years. But, you know, that was the whole thing I could tell the kids. Hey, I can lose with you. <laughs> I can lose without you. You know, what, what do you want to do? And that's almost what you want to have to do with some of these guys, you know, like your Christian Woods and, and your Kevin Porter Juniors when they, you know, do something stupid like that. Instead of sitting there saying, okay, it's okay, you know, you know we'll, we'll figure it out. No. And that's the thing is that, you know, Raphael Stone has done a pretty good job drafting individual talent. Like, when you look where Sangoon was drafted, he was drafted in the middle of the first round. You should not get a player like that in the middle of the first round. But at some point, you can't have a rotisserie team. This isn't a fantasy basketball team. These guys have to mesh together and eventually have to play a winning basketball. They scored 128 points tonight. That's, that's damn good. Except for the fact the other team scored 130. So you lost. I'm I'm interested. I would have liked to have seen because if you look back, Kevin McHale had Kelvin Sampson on his staff. Harden loved Kelvin Sampson. Harden and many of the Rockets went to the University of Houston's 
press conference when Kelvin was introduced as the new UH basketball coach. And then I think one season later, Kevin McHale's out the door, in come the D'Antoni years. I think the biggest mistake the Rockets made was not promoting Kelvin Sampson to head coach of that team. And I, I love everything Kelvin's done for the Houston Cougars. He's built a program there. But I, I still think one of the biggest mistakes that the Houston Rockets made was letting Kelvin Sampson go. Because you need somebody to hold these players accountable. And for the longest time, John Lucas in that Rockets organization has, has been the guy who holds players accountable. And I think when you have superstar talent, that works. Because the coach is more of a, he's a personality manager. He doesn't have to do as much to get their team ready because the players will hold themselves accountable because they are a superstar. That's what they do. When you don't have a legitimate star player to hold himself and the other players on the court accountable, it's got to be the coach. It can't be a guy like John Lucas. You can't have a secondary voice in that room trying to hold people to a standard that and it's not the head coach of the team doing it. And it's, at this point, I, I just feel like the Rockets are one of those teams that there's just too many cooks in the kitchen at this point, and none of it's working. None of it is working. You're wasting young talent. We're in position to, to have the number one pick again, which is was fantastic. This is uh, the, the kid coming out this year, Wambaya, I believe his name is. He's supposed to be a generational talent, and that's great. But what happens when he gets here if you don't develop him? Because you haven't developed Green. You haven't developed Kevin Porter Jr. You're wasting Sun Goon. Jabari Smith is is not off to a great start. You know, this was a guy, Jabari Smith was supposed to be the number one overall pick before Orlando surprised everyone and went with Banchero. So this was that was supposed to be, a, oh, you know, we got lucky. We got Jabari Smith fell to us. Well, now you haven't developed any talent whatsoever. And at some point, your next coaching hire, because there's no way Silas is back for one year, especially after that tirade the other night. Um, I think you've, you've got to look somewhere on that Nuggets bench. You've got to find someone who understands how to utilize a talent like Sengun, how to utilize someone like Jabari Smith better. And you've got to find guys. Someone's going to hold these guys accountable at the end of the day. There, there is no accountability in the Toyota Center whatsoever. Whatsoever, well, and, and you mentioned not promoting Kelvin Sampson, and the thing is, is that you know the the crime of it is that the Rockets went to Kelvin Sampson right now and said, you know, would you like to be our coach? Fire Kelvin Sampson. The answer is no. I'm about to go to the Big Twelve. You know, we're going to be in the Big Twelve. You know, this next year. And then, oh, he but, wouldn't leave now. He would not leave the Rocket, the, the, the Cougars 12, now. I'm sorry to tell you, especially with you know the one season that UT and Oklahoma are going to be there. That's the best basketball conference in the country. You 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 try and tell me what's a better one, you know, with the teams that you have in there. You you have U of H, and U of H is probably the best team in that conference coming in. And, and yeah, yeah, you've got it, Kansas. It, yeah. You've got you know, you've got some stalwarts. I mean, heck, my my alma mater TCU is ranked this year. I mean, you've got some Cincinnati's yeah, going yeah, over as well. Damn good teams in that conference. And so if I'm if I'm Kelvin Sampson, my answer is no. So now we, we, we can, you know, we can go with new assistants, but, you know, do we circle back to guys like Jeff Van Gundy, you know, things like that? I mean, it, the thing is, is that you need somebody. And, and if you look at, uh, there's a few games this year that John Lucas has been the head coach because, you know, Silas had uh, COVID, his dad died. 
So he had a few games that he he missed. Look at the Rockets' performance in those games. I guarantee you, defensively, they were a whole lot stronger in the games that he's missed. They have a winning record in the games that um, Lucas has coached this year, and the, and the defensive effort has been exceptional when when John so, Lucas is the you coach. Know, to me, if 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 it were me right now, I mean, Lucas might not want to do it, but I'd sit there, I'd give Silas his walking papers now. And I'd sit there and say, okay, you know, John, you're not going to be the coach long-term, but let's see if you can get these guys to play hard over the last, you know, 20, 25 games. And, you know, at least, at least, because, you know, to me, if you could build, and this is the disappointing thing about Jalen Green um, this year, and I think where Silas has really fallen off, last year, about the last 10 games of the year, he was averaging 30 points a game. And so he was starting to shoot the ball better. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay. Maybe next year we got something. But now we're seeing the same Jalen Green we saw as a rookie. A guy who will throw up 30 to 40 every now and then. And then every now and then he'll throw up a 5 for 17. And you're just like, okay, what are we doing? I want to see some momentum. Because and this is, and you mentioned the prospect coming out. This isn't the NFL. Having the worst record does not guarantee you the number one overall pick. It guarantees you are right. going to have the most ping pong balls along with those two other teams that are right there with you. You yeah. are guaranteed the fourth pick. You're not guaranteed one of the top three. Now, Rockets have been lucky, have been, you know, have been picked in the lottery to pick third and second in the last two years. Good for them. But to being the worst team in the league doesn't guarantee you anything. If that's where, if that's what we were doing, if if we were in the NFL and we were going to sit there and say we want to go twenty and sixty-two because we know that'll give us the worst record in the league, and we'll get the number one overall pick, we'll get that big center, we'll be in here, we'll be rocking and rolling. I'd be like, okay, I, I guess I could go along with that. But now, what are we doing? You're not guaranteed that. See, that's why I'm okay with holding on to Silas as essentially the tank commander. Uh, this season's lost. You're you're not going to do anything this season besides maybe develop talent a little bit more. Lose as much as you can. That's my thought process on this season. You've got to get it. You got to get that number one pick. That's there's such a drop off this year from number one to number two that you got to get number one. That being said, Silas. You're right, he's not the answer. Uh, I wouldn't be upset if they let him go to say, we want John Lucas to develop these young guys over the next 20 games, whatever we got left, 20, 25 games. Um, sadly, I think we have more than that. I think we got like 30-something left. But that being said, if that was the case, okay, I get it. But I also understand the idea of, like you said, let's let's be as bad as we can, try and get that draft pick, let's get the, 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 the guy that's going to put this franchise over the top, and then... New coach, new hire, new culture. Let's take it from there. Jalen Green's a guy who could win a scoring title. I, I think you and I both agree he's got the talent to do that. But he's got to be, and I'm going to bring it back full circle, he's got to be more like Kyle Tucker in the terms of if his shot's not falling, he's got to find other ways to help you win a basketball game. Um, you think back to the to the times of, of T-Mac and, and Harden, they had five for 17 nights, and they still put up 25, 26 points because they got to the line. Um, they found other ways to, to help the team win. They they would, uh, you know, Harden and T-Mac, both fantastic passers if the shot wasn't falling. 
you know, they would drive and dish and set up open looks for other teammates. You don't see the same thing for Green. You see him chucking. You just, I'm going to shoot my way out of this. And that's a shooter's mentality. That's not a playmaker's mentality, right? The shooter's mentality is to shoot your way through a slump. A playmaker's mentality is I'm going to make the best play for my team, whether it's me shooting the ball or whether it's me getting into an open spot in the corner for a three. Either way, I've made the best play for my team. And I think the the change for Green has got to be he's got to be a playmaker and he can't be a shooter or a scorer strictly. So, uh, when talking about our Houston team that is uh, culturally devoid, now we kind of transfer over to a team that we hope has turned the corner. Uh, culturally in limbo, some would say. We don't know the culture, but hopefully so they have going the number well. two overall pick. Um, and, you know, presumably we're going to pick a quarterback there. And we're talking yeah. about the, the Texans, for those of you who, who don't yeah. didn't pick up so, on that. Uh, something interesting. Obviously, you know, we got three months pretty virtually until you know the draft. You know, so who do you got at number two right now? Uh, are you picking quarterback, or are you going another direction? As of right now, to, if if the draft were today, I'm not going quarterback at number two. I am not in love with any of the quarterback prospects at a level of, say, I would like to have Caleb Williams. Like, if Caleb Williams was coming out, I'm going quarterback all day, and, and I'm trying to trade up to number one to get him. With this crop, this class of, of quarterbacks, uh, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of risk. And there's always a lot of risk when you draft a quarterback. But I, I just don't see any of these guys as the can't miss quarterback of the future. If I got if if I got CJ Stroud at 12, maybe that's a different conversation. But having to pick Bryce Young at 2, CJ Stroud at 2, that really really scares me. And with a guy like D'Amico, I'd like to give him as many weapons on the defensive side of the ball as possible. Take, you know, take the lineman from from Georgia, take uh, take Anderson from from Alabama, get some defensive beef up at the front, put a little pressure on the quarterback. You, there's guys later in this draft that I think are going to be pretty darn good quarterbacks in the NFL, and you can call me a homer, you can say whatever. I, I think Clayton Toon from the University of Houston um, is a guy who's going to go in the third to fourth round, who I think is already going to come in and be better than Davis Mills. I think he is a more athletic Ben Roethlisberger. And if you're going to take a shot at a quarterback in your first year, I don't mind you drafting a third or fourth round guy and then going to sign Jimmy Garoppolo, Geno Smith, Derek Carr, something of that nature to get through year one. I mean, when, when Bill O'Brien first got to Houston and say what you want about Bill O'Brien, his first, you know, his first however many years here until he made himself the GM, Texans were a relevant team. They were a good team. Uh, he went nine and seven with Ryan Fitzpatrick. He went nine and seven with a combination of Hoyer, Mallet, the kitchen sink, back to Hoyer. Um, then he finally um, made the decision to draft Deshaun Watson in twenty seventeen. But you can you can have a winning record in this league, and when you look at our division specifically, um, Titans are. are I don't know what we're going to get out of the Titans next year. Are they going to hand the, the reins over to Malik Willis? Is it going to be another year Ryan Tannehill? I don't know. Uh, the Jaguars, I think, are, are going to be the team to beat. But even still, they went 
you know, nine and eight this year, eight and nine. Uh, they've got a lot of work to do to be a dominant lock and, and, and Indies and, and quarterback hell. And if, and if they hire Jeff Saturday, I, I have no worries about Indianapolis as a franchise beating us at all right now. So for those reasons specifically, I am in favor of passing on a quarterback in that first round. See if a guy like Clayton Toon can catch lightning in a bottle in the third or fourth and bring it in a, a seasoned veteran, a guy like Derek Carr, a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo, or, you know, even if, if, if Geno Smith is willing to leave Seattle, um, I think it would probably take more than a one-year deal to get Geno. But somebody like that would be uh, would be my pick. I could go along with that, but you mentioned Indianapolis was the magic word. Uh, Indianapolis has been in quarterback hell since Andrew Luck retired. They've tried a new guy every year. We went Philip Rivers. Maybe he can have one last year before he retires. Nope. We tried Carson Wentz. You know, maybe if he goes back to his old coach. You know, Frank Reich was calling offensive plays when Carson Wentz was almost the MVP. Hey, maybe that can work. Statistically, it actually did. I mean, you look at the numbers. He had good numbers, but that didn't work. Then we, you know, we went with Matt Ryan, who you know probably should retire. I don't know if he's going to, but you know that was. You know, and you look at other teams. Carolina has been in quarterback hell for quite some time. You know, they went with Cam Newton and they went with Kyle Allen, who we saw how good that worked um, just in two games this last year. Um, they went Baker Mayfield this year. Hey, Baker Mayfield's out there. Hey, uh, but the thing is, is that the Texans were competitive, right, with your Brian Hoyers and your Ryan Fitzpatrick's, but we're on a hamster wheel. That team has a ceiling. We know what it is. We can get to the wild card. Maybe if we're lucky and the, the uh, then Oakland Raiders throw out a third string quarterback, we can beat, you know, we can take a Brock Eisweiler and we can win that game and make it to the divisional round. Yay. Congratulations. But what we know is, is that unless you're Kyle Shanahan, you cannot take an average quarterback and get to the Super Bowl. And so if you tell me that the Texans can find an offensive play caller as gifted as Kyle Shanahan, I'm on that. I'm on board with you. Let's go. Let's, let's go do this thing. But the other problem I have is that if you're going to bring in a veteran quarterback, uh, somebody like, let's say, Derek Carr, Derek Carr right now, he's on a three-year contract for $110 million. So you can make a trade with Las Vegas. You can pick that contract up. No. Or you can sign him as a free agent. Okay. But he has options. He can go to the Saints. He can go to the Jets. Um, he could probably maybe go to the Panthers. I, you know, he can go just about anywhere he wants to go uh, within about, you know, about four or five teams. So that's you're not getting anything less than $30 million. And so what I would rather do is I would rather take a guy with the second pick. And, and I agree. It's a gamble. Zach Wilson, terrible. Everybody loved Zach Wilson coming out of BYU. Look at all these throws this guy can make. He's two years in, he sucks. Yeah, you know, the Jets have given up on him. Well, that's that's part of the that's part of the evaluation problem too, right? I don't I don't care what you do in shorts and a t-shirt. I I care what I saw on tape. You know, I and I think you know the guy I mentioned, Clayton Toon, he's going to shoot up draft boards in the shirt. And T-shirt analysis aspect of things, right? He's six foot five. He's mobile. He can move. He's got a big arm. I don't care about that. I, I, those are every 
theoretically, every quarterback in the NFL has got a big arm. Every quarterback has found a way to win, whether it's their pocket guy, they move outside the pocket. They've been playing the way that they play for a long time. The thing that matters to me is the game tape. I, I think what's tough with this is, is we're trying to, you're trying to look short term, but at the same time, we're trying to look at the long term stability of the franchise. I see a lot of holes on that Houston Texans roster. You know, I don't think you have one legitimate NFL wide receiver. You know, that's assuming Cooks is gone. You don't have a legitimate tight end. You are terrible at both guard positions and center. You've we've mentioned, you know, Pierce had a great year, but we've mentioned the the list of Texans running backs that had one good year and didn't come back again the next year. So, and that's just on the offensive side. You've got holes at every skill position but running back. And then on the defensive side of the ball, you're okay. You're not good, but you're okay. There's some pieces in place. Petrie had a nice year last year. Um, we'll see about, about Stingley once you, you get a legitimate defensive coordinator in there, see what we can do there. There's just so many holes to fill. I feel like even if you draft Bryce Young at number two right now, let's say that's who the Texans go out and get, you have no offensive talent whatsoever to help him with. If you go draft offensive talent, okay, they're all learning the NFL together. It, it, it's just not a good scenario, and I feel like you're setting up your quarterback to fail. If you get a guy into a legitimate situation after you know you draft a bunch of skill players and defensive players this year, you get a, a one-year quarterback. Now, next year, you go. Now you have some draft capital next year. You can move up if you want to go get your guy. To me, that's just a long-term outlook that seems like not only the safer play, but the the better play to be a contender faster. I, I think a good quarterback covers up a lot of holes, but even, you know, we saw with Deshaun Watson um, up 20, 24-0 against the Kansas City Chiefs. A good quarterback can only plug so many holes. Eventually, the better team more likely is going to win. And so even if the Texans somehow drafted the the next um, Joe Montana, Tom Brady, you know, whoever you think the GOAT is, let's say Bryce Young's Tom Brady, he still has no weapons next year. He still has an offensive line that's going to get him killed. He still has a defense that's probably going to give up 25 to 30 points a game as is right now without adding pieces to it. Um Yes, the Texans are great at tackle. We, the Texans are great at left or right tackle, but any kind of bull rush up the middle, you got no time. And so I just, I just feel like you're really not setting your quarterback up for success if that's who you go with in the I second think, pick. Uh, to counter that, I would sit there and say this. And I did a couple of articles on um, Battle Red Block, basically looking at potential cap casualties uh, that we have on the roster. Right now, on the defensive side, you can very easily cut almost $20 million and not cut anybody good. Boom. Um, if you want to sit there and say, let's say goodbye to Jerry Hughes because he's 35, Jerry Hughes was a pretty good player this year. That's another $5 million. That's $25 million. Um, and if you look on the, on the offensive side, um, once you re-sign Laramie Tunsil, you're cutting the cap figure by about $10 million. So we're talking conservatively, they can add 30 million spending money to that cap, right? Now, if you go the veteran route, that $30 million is soaked up all in a quarterback. 
and you're talking, you know, Jimmy G, you're talking Derek Carr. Okay. How good is Jimmy G without talent? Because, you know, Jimmy G made the Super Bowl with a talented roster. So my counter to that would basically be to say this. If you give me $60 million to spend and I'm not getting a quarterback, I can, you know, I can get a kick-ass center. I can get a kick-ass defensive tackle. I can get, you know, maybe some good linebackers. Maybe I get a good safety. And so I'm starting to plug some of those holes. Because I think with the offensive line, uh, A.J. can at least in terms, I don't know if you follow uh, Pro Football Focus at all, but his, his grades were decent enough. Uh, nothing, you know, too terrible there. Um, and so if you put an experienced center next to Kenyon Green, I think Kenyon Green gets better in year two anyway. And you mentioned those two tackles. And so I think our offensive line, you know, has an outside chance of being top 10 just with a good center. Now, you can draft a good center. That's certainly a possibility. But you, there's also a couple of free agents you can sign. Now, my fear is, and you talk to whole T-shirts and shorts, we get love over Will Levis. And when I look at Will Levis, I look at the same thing, and I'm sure you've watched the movie Moneyball. I don't know if you read the book. Um, yeah, I did both. And I remember you know, early on, Billy Bean is talking to the scouts, and the scouts are talking about this guy in the minors. All he recognizes the curveball. And Billy Bean's like, why is he still swinging at it? Well, if you gave him 500, 500 at-bats, he'd figure it out. Really? To me, college numbers don't necessarily translate to the, to, uh, to the NFL. And we've learned this over the years. I mean, Ryan Leaf and, and others. But what I can tell you is a guy that didn't play good in college is probably not going to play good in the NFL. And when you look at Will Levis' numbers, you're looking at it, you're like, wow, let's say he has these exact numbers in Houston. That's not getting you to a Super Bowl. Now, my personal opinion, I like Bryce Young. Because I think the only his only downside is his size. And and there is a question of whether or not, you know, is he going to be durable? Well, he's been durable so far. And the other thing I look at with Bryce Young is that his Alabama team was not good. Um, that was probably the least talented Alabama offense that they've had in years, offensive line-wise, receiver-wise this year. I mean, he had guys like John Mechie last year when he won the Heisman Trophy. But, you know, he didn't have a whole lot of talent there. And basically the Bill O'Brien offense reared his ugly head there in Alabama because basically it's like for three quarters, we're going to try to run the football and fail. And in the fourth quarter, okay, Bryce Young, save us. And he was able to do it. In almost every game, except for Tennessee and for LSU, uh, and but he was able to do it the rest of the time. Texas should have beaten them, but here comes Bryce Young to the rescue. We're going to make some plays. Bada bing, bada boom, we win. The uh, what worries me about C.J. Stroud, and I watched that Georgia game. That was a that was great tape. If that's the only tape you got on C.J. Stroud, man, sign me up. But the problem with C.J. Stroud is, is that. Every week they walked out, they had more talent than any team they were facing, except for Georgia. I mean, he has the best receiver in college football, not coming out for the draft this year. Marvin Harrison Jr., best receiver in college football. 
he had the best receiver last year who mysteriously didn't play, and you still have people mocking him in the first round. He has two tackles that are probably first-round picks. And yet, you know, he lost to Michigan somehow. Hell, my Horned Frogs beat Michigan. I mean, how? what are we doing? But C.J. Stroud, at least, he's putting up numbers. I mean, Will Levis, I mean, he's like 23 touchdowns, 12 interceptions or something like that, and you're like, really? And that's... Yeah, Will Levis is shorts and t-shirts, but also he's just that prototypical size, arm strength that, that scouts love. And I think a guy like Josh Allen has made drafting someone like Will Levis a, a much easier thing to do. When to me, Levis is he's more like Jake Locker than he is Josh Allen. Uh, you know, Jake Locker was a guy who had all the immeasurables, you know, arm strength out the wazoo, was mobile, could do all that stuff, was pretty darn good in college, but, you know, just not quite fast enough. He's, you know, a little bit bigger, a little bit more mature Johnny Manziel, right? Where the guys that you outrun in college are now just lighting you up in the NFL, uh, and that decision making isn't as good. So, to me, Will Levis is a non starter for the Texans. The, the, the thing that just, the size is what scares me with, with Bryce Young because I still remember when RG3 came out. And, you know, there was a lot of that debate at, at 1 and 2 whether it was going to be Luck then RG3 or RG3 then Luck. And to me, from the beginning, I, I thought RG3 was too small, too skinny. And really? you saw what happened in that career. It just If you're going to sink that kind of draft capital into a quarterback, if you don't hit, it sets your franchise yeah. back five years. The That's the thing that hurts. Is, I would say that uh, you got to look at the style of play there because Robert Griffin III was a running quarterback. And so, I mean, he I put him in the same you know, box as Lamar Jackson, uh, Kyler Murray, who have both had serious injuries. I mean, Kyler Murray is probably going to come back maybe midseason next year with the ACL tear. Uh, Lamar Jackson hasn't finished a season in three years. Uh, he's another potential quarterback on the open market. You know, if anybody wants to, you know, dip their toe into that, those waters. I think you know when I, if you want to make a baseball analogy with a guy like Will Levis, uh, the analogy I would make is with Astros fans, Jose Siri, Carlos Gomez. Those are guys on the baseball field that athletically could do everything. Raw power. Speed to burn can make great defensive plays. The thing is, is that they didn't do it routinely enough. If you want to go with a non-astro, Cephas is another great example. A guy who, you know, you could watch YouTube and watch some plays that this guy's made. You're like, holy shit, man, look at that throw. Or holy shit, you know, look at. But how often do you actually do it? And that's where, you know, a guy like Will Levis and all those quarterbacks you mentioned before you can make an isolated throw or two a game where you're like, holy cow, man, that's a great throw. Thing is, is modern NFL, you're throwing it 30 to 40 times a game. So if you're hanging your hat on two or three throws, how, well, how many stupid throws are you making? Or if you're Jose Siri and Carlos Gomez, how, how many times are you swinging at that curveball in the dirt and the fans are like, what the hell? You know, come on, man. And so that, that's what worries me about Levis. Yeah, I think that's a 
that's a really nice comparison with with Siri and, and Gomez for Levis's physical specimen. You know, he, he's got all the measurables that you could ask for uh, in terms of a quarterback, but quarterbacks that one position where the immeasurables are almost you know as as important, if not more important. Um, than the, than the things that you can measure on tape and on, on paper. You know, the uh, you think back to draft day. Why did anybody come to his birthday party you know, kind of thing uh, from the old uh, Kevin Costner movie? There's so many other there's so many other things. Uh, you know, he, there's even the old story of, of Jamarcus Russell, uh, how they, you know, taped a $100 bill inside the playbook. And, uh, hey, do you have any questions? Any questions about the, the playbook? And everybody would say, hey, I, I found a $100 bill in there. What was up with that? Jamarcus Russell? No. I'm good. Playbook looked fine. And so they knew right then and there he didn't read the playbook. Um, and so that's another guy, right, who had – I still remember the ESPN Sports Center footage of this guy throwing 40 yards from sitting flat on the ground, 60 yards from his knees, 80 yards standing up. That's great. How many games did Jamarcus Russell win in the NFL? Because I think it was less than 10 oh, in his I career. He played 10. Um, I mean, I I think he won like six and ten one year. One year he played a full year season and went like six and ten. But that being said, that was a number one overall pick in the draft. Uh, missing that pick set the Raiders back till they got Derek Carr, right? And that was they had a good eight years of between Jamarcus Russell and, and Terrell Pryor and uh, all the other guys that they ran out there at quarterback until they got Derek Carr in the building. If you miss that pick at quarterback, I think the Cardinals, the, the Arizona Cardinals are the only team that managed to, to survive that because they, they took a first-round quarterback two years in a row when, when they missed on Rosen, and then they immediately picked Kyler Murray number one overall the next year. That's you know that's a scenario like, what if the Texans don't like Bryce Young and they're picking one overall next year? Do you take Caleb Williams or do you... That's what's tough for me is I, I rate Caleb Williams so high that I'm willing to roll the dice this year on a veteran in hopes that maybe I get that guy next year. And maybe maybe that's the wrong way to look at it, but I just think he is heads and tails better than every prospect in now, this draft I, this yeah, year. Where I'm at right now is right now, number one, I, I'm a Bryce Young guy. And what I'll say is if Bryce Young is there at two, I'm taking him. That, and that's where I'm at. I am not trading up with the Bears to have a pick that we should have had if we had run things properly. I'm not, you know, I'm not giving the Bears any, any draft capital to sit there and say, here, we're going to take the guy that we, you know, we wanted to do before. Um, and if you grade C.J. Stroud as, as even, maybe. But the, the, here's the difference. And you got to remember, you know, who was the coach of the Raiders back when they picked Marcus Russell? It was Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin That's said, right. I want no part of Jamarcus Russell. Al Davis said, screw you, I'm picking him anyway. Now, here's where, here's where I'm at on this. Now, you know, we got Nick Casario. Nick Casario falls in love with Bryce Young. That's great. But if D'Amico Ryans and whoever he picks as his offensive coordinator says, you know what, he's not it. Trust your coaching staff. You, you hired him. You paid him a six-year contract. He knows, uh, he knows football players about as well as anybody. And he knows defense about as well as anybody. If he sits there and says, you know what? I can dominate on defense with Jalen Carter. 
I'd be like, okay, yeah, I okay, I'll go along with that. Or you know, man, if I had Will Anderson on the outside, you know, rushing a quarterback, man, look what I could do with this defense in one year. If he, if if yeah. he honestly, you evaluate it, and you come to the conclusion that Bryce Young isn't it, don't take him just because you know the people want you to take him. Don't don't, don't give him yeah, don't it, give him to me because I want him. I, I'm not a football guy, but. If you decide that Bryce Young, you think everybody in the room thinks this guy's the best quarterback prospect in this draft, if he's on the board, I take him because you don't know what next year's going to hold. So let's say you draft Jalen Carter or Will Anderson. What happens if you go eight and nine? Nine and eight. You got two first round. You got two first yeah. round picks, though. That's the only thing I think in our back pocket that we have. And let me let me just phrase it this way: If Caleb Williams was available this year, and you had Caleb Williams, Bryce Young, or C.J. Stroud to choose from, are you still a Bryce Young guy, or are you taking Caleb oh, no, Williams? I'm taking Caleb Williams. I, I watched him in the Cotton Bowl. I mean, he. That's and that's where I'm at. Is I feel like with the draft capital the Texans have, they can get to number one next year, regardless. I just don't where they know are. that the problem I have with that, again, is kind of twofold. Number one, you kind of turn into Indianapolis and Carolina where you're playing quarterback carousel. And the other thing is you're, you're kind of punting. You're punting on quarterback for another year. And so, yes. And, yes. You know, the issue with that is, you know, maybe he's a Trevor Lawrence type prospect that's a once in a five year guy. But then what happens if you sit there and find some other guy who's currently a freshman? And you think, well, he's better than Caleb Williams. Let's wait on him. You're right. I mean, at some yeah. point you gotta pull the trigger, right? At some point you and gotta so, get your guy. That's what I'm saying. If I'm saying if, if they think Bryce Young is their guy, take him. You know, and then, at the end of the day, Scott, if if D'Amico comes out, and I'm with you, if D'Amico comes out and says he's a Texan, he's got what we're looking for, that's who we're going to go get, I'm going to trust D'Amico Ryans because he's shown me everything I want to see from a leader of this organization. If, if D'Amico comes out and says, I believe this guy can take us to the promised land, I'm with you. I just I haven't seen that from him. Everything I've seen from D'Amico is I don't want to commit to a quarterback oh, well, at number two. I mean, but the thing is, is that this is lying season. Nobody, nobody's going to come out and say, you know what, we're taking Bryce Young number two because you know, now, right? Because that's yeah, only going to jump to one. You know, and... you're going to be coy. You're going to sit there and say, this is kind of what I'm looking for. And you know, and I don't mind the idea of picking in a guy in the third or fourth round. I mean, uh, the one guy that you know has traits that are intriguing is Richardson out of Florida. Problem is, is that he's probably going to be a first round pick. Uh, and I just think that's way too early for him because he's, he's another guy Agreed. that you look at his numbers and you're like, uh, damn, this doesn't look good. But if you watched him play, I mean, there were some isolated games where you're like, damn. And if you wanted to wait on quarterback and if you wanted to sit there and say, you know what, we're going to suck next year anyway, maybe you want to pick a, like a hooker from Tennessee knowing he's going to spend most of 2023 rehabbing. And, and so that's why I think Clayton Toon is the guy this year. I think Clayton Toon is the guy in this draft with the most upside for I, where he's going to be picked. I haven't seen you know too many U of H games. Um, what I have watched are a ton of TCU games, 
And I say, I feel pity for any team that thinks Max Duggan is going to lead them to the promised land. Uh, no, he's, he's, he's a right-handed uh, team. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, I watched, I went to the Oklahoma game, the greatest, you know, greatest game, you know, TCU game that I've seen live in person because, you know, Oklahoma comes into that game ranked and we just, I mean, we beat them like, so like 60 to 20 or something like that. But he threw three or four touchdown passes where there is like nobody within 20 yards of this wide receiver. And he's practically, the wide receiver is practically having to do a fair catch. You know, because, I mean, it was, I mean, it's just a wounded duck that, you know, gets out there and, of course, the guy runs in for a touchdown because, you know, there's nobody within 20 yards of him. But the thing is, at the next level, you can't do that. And that's where, and that's where numbers, you know, when you watch tape, you, you got it. This is why, you know, I'm not a trained scout. I wish I was. But you have to be able to sit there and picture what you're going to face at the next level. You know, you're, you're talking about throwing to tight windows. You're talking about throwing guys open. Uh, you're talking about, you know, one-on-one contested catches, that sort of thing. Um, do we have the receivers, you know, points you made? No, right now, uh, to make those kinds of moves. You know, do you spend number 12 drafting a, like a Jordan Anderson Addison out of USC or a Quentin Johnston out of TCU that could maybe make some of those contested catches? Maybe. But the same thing is with uh, receivers is usually, I mean, you can look back at Andre Johnson's first year in the, in the NFL. You could look at DeAndre Hopkins' first year at the NFL. These are Hall of Fame wide receivers who, as rookies, not really that great. As second-year guys, Hopkins exploded. It was great. Hopkins is a, Hopkins is a tough one, too, because if you remember – Hopkins' first year in the NFL was pick six Adelphia uh, right, for right, right. Matt Schaub. Was, and then they started running through Case Keenum and, and everybody else. So Hopkins had, okay, I think he had like eight or 900 yards receiving that year. But the, um, All the things Texans considered. Yeah, you're, he wasn't the dominant. He wasn't the dominant uh, DeAndre Hopkins that we came to know and love that you know, anywhere within six feet is his catch radius kind of thing. But I do think it's going to yeah. take some time for receivers to, 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 to gel. I think the only – the one thing I, I – there's a trend going on right now in the NFL of pairing quarterback or receivers together from college, right? You know, you have that Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow connection. You've got um, Devontae Smith and, and Jalen Hurts up in Philadelphia – um, you've got oh, uh, a lot of guys who are getting paired with their former college quarterbacks. Mechie coming back next year with Bryce Young is something that is intriguing to me because that slot position is such a feel, a lot of option routes, a lot of quick decision-making for both the slot receiver and the quarterback. So in a scenario where those two guys have played together, and they've been successful together already, and they already have that timing down. That aspect of Bryce Young really is intriguing. Yeah, and to the me. problem is, is that it's hard to evaluate the Texans. It's hard to evaluate, especially in the offensive side of the ball. You know, outside the offensive line. Um, but even with like guys like Kenny Green, Pep Hamilton was such a horrible offensive coordinator. Um, and then before him, and the Titans hired him as their OC, Tim Kelly. <laughs> Makes me laugh. But, you know, the whole thing is, is that those guys were horrible. And so, I mean, they couldn't, you know, 
they couldn't scheme their way of a paper bag. And so when you're looking at a guy like a Nico Collins, could he be a 50 or 60 catch guy in a decent offense? Maybe. John Mechie is probably not going to be a Jordan Jefferson. He's not going to be, uh, you know, a, a DeAndre Hopkins, but he could be like a 50, 60 catch guy. Uh, I think he could be a, a yeah. Wes Welker type player with more athletic. He's not an outside receiver. He's right. a slot guy. And, and I think, I think he could give you 70 catches for a thousand yards sure. and six and touchdowns. So you add that together with a decent Nico Collins. Because I, I think Nico Collins has shown, you know, he's speaking of guys who show things in spurts. He's made a, you know, some impressive in, contested catches uh, with his. T- uh, he's like six four, you know. I mean, he's he's got a big frame. You add another guy to the other side of that, like a Jordan Andrew, Addison or a Quentin Johnston. See if they can develop. Uh, Nagimbe Smith out of Ohio State, you know, is a guy I, I don't know. I it makes me so nervous when guys basically miss a whole year. Yeah, Derek Stingley yeah. pulled that, and of course we saw what happened this about last year. Um, Stingley goes into that bad coordinator yeah. thing to me. Yeah, I, I think in terms of his play, it. yes, but in terms of being injury prone, I mean that's that that that's, yeah, you know. So, but if you go with Addison and Johnson, and I watch Johnson play, Johnson is not a number one wide receiver yet, um, but he is a guy that can make those contested catches. And so he's a guy that you could throw 40, 50 yards down the field and occasionally hit on. Um, and, and, those are, and those are, you know, game-breaking plays. And we've seen Josh Allen make a living off of that. So, I, But the thing with Josh Allen is, and the thing with it, if you're going to say, if you want to give Nico Collins another year of run, right, as, as a guy who can make contested catches, I'm a big believer of you've got to have a tactician on the other side of the field. You've got to have a guy who runs unbelievably crisp routes, whose footwork gets him open. Because you can't have your X and Y receiver be jump ball guys. You've got to have somebody who can run that 5-yard in, who can run that 10-yard out, who can run the post, and they're going to beat people on their footwork and their route running, and they're going to get themselves open that way for a 10-yard catch. Because that's something the Texans don't have. They need a good footwork position number one wide receiver you know kind of of the anquan bolden uh mold right someone or even andre andre johnson was a phenomenal route runner you know andre johnson didn't catch a ton of deep balls andre johnson caught a lot of 10 yard hitches and and a lot of crossing routes over the middle because he was Phenomenal off the break, and then he had excellent speed. Once he once he did get past you, he was yeah. Blowing the problem by that you. you have right now is that uh, Nico Collins really isn't a speed guy, and so if you go out and you draft, you know, a guy runs like a four five or four six, you gotta you know, Mechie's not a burner. Uh, he's a slot guy. He's probably going to run maybe a four four or four five. I can't remember what his combine to- uh, combine time. Um, so Nico Collins might not be it. Eventually, you might have to get the number one wide receiver in his spot and then get a deep threat. Now, Jordan Addison might be a better wide receiver one than Johnston you know, early on. Uh, I mean, I'd have to watch more tape of him because uh, I watched plenty of Johnston. I didn't watch too much UC football. Now, I, I know he had Caleb Williams throwing to him. I watched him, you know, I watched them torch the hell out of Tulane in the Cotton Bowl. 
until you know their coach decided not to have Caden Williams throw the ball anymore for whatever reason. Um, so maybe Addison's a better fit there. You know, I'm willing. You know, I'm willing to look at that. But the problem is, is that you need two things. You need that tactician, like you said, but you also need a burner. You need somebody who can take the top off the defense. And that's something that Nico Collins yeah. doesn't do either. So, and, and and to me, that's why Nico Collins essentially is a wasted roster spot. I, I don't, at this point in his career, even though he's had the quarterbacks that he's had, you know, whatever you want to say about him, what he does, you know, what's his best attribute after two years in the NFL is he's going to go catch some jump balls, right? That's his best attribute is to go up and, and make a contested catch. Um, that's that's not what gets you on the field consistently as an NFL player. Even even the guy that's famous for going up and, and quote-unquote mossing people, Randy Moss, phenomenal route runner, phenomenal route runner, great at positioning his body, got himself open all over the field. Yeah, he'd go up and make some ridiculous catches, but that was only because they were so scared of him that they had to you know shade the defense a certain way and they also had Chris Carter. You know, let's not forget, early on in his career, he had Chris Carter on one side and Randy Moss on the other. So you could only do so much with safety help. You know, at, at the way the Texans are built, you're not even giving safety help to Nico Collins, and he's not even consistently beating people anywhere. So you're right. You need that over-the-top speed to have a safety a safety shift in that way. I mean, when the Texans had their offense running the best, it was with Will Fuller on one side and DeAndre Hopkins on the other, because you had speed over the top, and that allowed Hopkins to run those long cross routes over the middle, uh, you know, and on top of that, Watson had the athleticism to buy you time to let Hopkins work over the middle, or if, if Fuller beat his man off the break, great, I got a touchdown off yeah. the DR bomb. That's that's good offense. They don't have that, they don't have, e they don't have either of those guys right now. They don't have the great route runner, and they don't have the, the burner on, on the side. I think, in my opinion, the burner's easiest to find in the draft. There's there's always going to be four, three, four. There's always going to be four, three guys in the draft. That's just that gets you drafted. Speed gets drafted. I think you can find someone in the in the third or fourth round for that speed wide receiver spot. I think it's a lot tougher to find that number one guy who runs great routes, who doesn't drop balls, who's always open, even when he's not open. Those are tougher to find. Andre Johnson's don't grow on trees. I feel like Will Fuller's do a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, and I, I think that's true. And I think the other thing that uh, when you're talking about Nico Collins specifically, he may not be the guy, and that's okay. I mean, he's a third round pick. Uh, you know, so you know, so let's say we move him to the bench. Is that the worst thing in the world? I mean, is it the worst thing in the world to sit there and say, okay, now we're inside the ten yard line? We're going to run some three and four receiver sets and, you know, we need a second guy who can do a jump ball. Maybe he's, you know, a good you know, niche guy that we can put in this spot. You know, maybe so. The other thing. If he, I mean, if he's fine with that role, I'm fine with him having that role. It obviously comes down to how is he going to be in the locker room for a third straight year of not seeing the field more well, than 10 I mean, snaps was, a game. He was consistently on the field when he was healthy this year. He just wasn't making catches. I think part of that is the scheme. Part of that's Davis Mills, and part of that is him. And so you know, what you need to do is you need to figure out, is there a guy out there that can coach this guy up? Is there a guy, you know, Andre Johnson was at the press conference. 
I don't think he's going to, he wants to be a full-time wide receiver coach, but can he come out in training camp and sit there and say, okay, listen, this is what I did. This is how you run routes. Maybe you can coach this guy up, you know, to be a better version of himself. And if he's a better version of himself, you know, maybe he's a guy that, you know, turns into, I don't know, a 30 or 40 catch guy, a year guy, you know, somebody who's splitting time, you know, maybe when you're running four wide receiver sets, he's out there, you know, when you're running three wide receivers, he's not, that's okay. He's a third, he's a third. Let me, let me give you a little, let me give you a little comp here. If you could get the production that Kevin Walter gave you, you had Andre Johnson on one side, Kevin Walter on the other. Would you take that from Nico Collins? It has, and be okay with it as you're starting Y wide receiver. I would be okay with it while he's earning rookie money. Um, okay. The problem I had with Walter was Walter they paid quite a bit of money to. The other thing with Walter too, it's because he was a good. It's because yeah, he was a good yes, blocker, yeah. Scott. Yeah, he's <laughs> tough, smart, and dependable. Um, but yeah, I don't, and, and that's where I, I write a feature on Federal Blog, and it's called the value of things. And basically, the whole idea behind it was, you know, just watching this, the people that Bill O'Brien would sign, which Kevin Walter was not a Bill O'Brien signing. This is back in the Kubiak days, so don't don't you know sit there and tell me that you know he didn't sign Kevin Walter. I know he did. But we're signing guys like Nick Martin to huge contracts. We're signing guys like Whitney Merciless to huge contracts. The problem was never, for me, was never Whitney Merciless himself. Whitney Merciless was a perfectly okay linebacker. Could get you some sacks. The problem was when you start paying him like he's a stud. That's the problem. So, you know, if you're going to tell me Nico Collins is a $10 million receiver, I'm out. I am out big time. If you're telling me he's making 750K, all right. I, I can get 30, 40 catches from this guy, especially if some of them are around the goal line. You know, if he's catching four or five touchdown passes a year because he's a jump ball guy, I'll take that. No, I think that's fair. And I, I want to hit on one one last thing here before we, before we wrap it up because we are getting over the two-and-a-half-hour mark here, but – um, JJ Watt, along with, you know, a lot of former Texans were, were, you know, active on social media as well as present for, uh, D'Amico Ryan's hiring. JJ Watt has specifically said he's, he's willing to help D'Amico any way he can. That's not coaching. He doesn't want to coach. And, and you mentioned Andre Johnson, you know, could we get this guy at, at camp to help coach guys up? In baseball, you have the that position, you know, the special assistant to the GM, the guys who show up at, at spring training, the, the BGOs, the Bagwells of the world, who, who do that spring training instruction, and then they're gone. You don't really have that in football. It's not really as much of a thing. You'll have some guys who come in during, during camp, but that's it. I'm more curious, um, when it comes to this coaching staff, in your opinion, to me, a guy like J.J. Watt or an Andre Johnson specifically aren't as valuable as coaches simply because, you know, even more J.J. than Andre. J.J. had such God-gifted athletic talent, it's hard to coach that. It's hard to coach being J.J. Watt. And that's why I think a lot of times the best coaches 
are the guys who were okay, found a way to hang around in the league for 10 years on the limited talent that they have, and then they're able to you know, portray that or pass that information down to, to their players. I look at uh, the Detroit Lions staff, and that staff is littered with former NFL players. But if you look at the NFL players themselves, you know, I, I think the quarterback coach, Mark Brunel, is a perfect example of the kind of player that you want to be a coach. Mark Brunel was, was good. He was a good quarterback. He was never the best in the league. He was never the most athletically gifted. But he got 10 to 15 years of good quarterback play out of the gifts that he was given based on being prepared, based on knowing what to look for in a defense, just everything that comes with coming ready to play on Sundays. To me, those are the kind of former NFL players that you want to bring in as coaches and less of the star player who just retired. To me, it's, it's, it's hard to coach as a star player when you had so much God-given talent. I know J.J. was an unbelievably hard worker. I, you know, I get that. I, I think that can't go overlooked. But at the end of the day, to me, when I'm looking for a guy to be one of my coaches, I want that guy who was good enough to stick around, but he wasn't a superstar. Yeah, and I think J.J. has a place. I think he does. Um, in, instead of hiring a youth pastor uh, as a so-called life coach turned you know, executive vice president, JJ instead of Easter Bay would have been great. I think you're I think, you're right I there. Yeah, you know, he did. And and the funny thing is about playing, especially towards the end, he was starting to get some criticism behind the scenes because basically, you know, and, and everybody's seen that. Remember the Titans, you know, movie, and but basically, he turned into I'm getting mine, and the rest of you guys, you know, can basically screw yourself. Like he, you know, the defensive end in a typical, especially a three-four. But even a 4-3, you're setting the edge. J.J. Watt wasn't setting the edge. No, There were many times J.J. Watt blew off yeah. the assignment to go make a play. And when he was early in his career, that athleticism before the injuries, he was making a lot of plays. But when he got a little older, those injuries caught up, now he's ditching the assignment to go make a play. He doesn't make the play. Quarterback breaks contain. So, and yeah, here's so a big for play. technique, defensive line, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not, uh, no, I don't want J.J. in on that. What I do want him in on is talking about life away from football. How do you prepare yourself? Because that guy was maniacal. I mean, he, you know, he is probably, you know, the defensive version of Tom Brady in terms of preparing his body to be the very best he could be. And, and NFL yeah. Kobe Bryant, yeah, if absolutely. I may. But, you know, you, you bring up the NBA, you know, another proof of that, you know, Michael Jordan's been coach slash uh, executive here for two decades more. Charlotte Hornets, he's owner of Charlotte Hornets. What have they done? Nothing. And so, yeah, the problem is, is that when you are great, it's like, you know, you, you take it from a golf analogy. If I just naturally pick up a club and I'm hitting it 320 down the fairway, you know, and I do that without any instruction whatsoever. I've just, you know, gifted that way. Am I going to be the best guy to teach you how to do that? Probably not. But if I had to work my butt off on the range and I had to sit there and take instruction from this guy, this guy, this guy, learn different techniques, maybe I can be a good instructor, you know, because I've gotten good instruction. 
and I had to work to do it. It's the same thing with teachers. Okay, if I made all A's in school, I probably wouldn't be a good teacher. But if I could sit there and say, you know what, I was in this class in high school and I made a C. I had to struggle my butt off. So I know what it is to not get something and have to struggle. That's where you want coaches. And, and I think some of the coaches you mentioned with Detroit, you know, I, I know Aaron Glenn is one is the defensive coordinator out there. Terrific one. Do Staley, do Staley, a running back coach. I mean, these are all guys who were good, but they weren't Andre the best. Johnson, I think you mentioned him as a tactician. So I think I do think he could offer something along those lines. I think Andre is a, a little different. I do think on, I agree with you on that one. That Andre is a little different. Let's let's take Andre out of this because what made him good was his his route running. So I do think that's something you pass on. If you could only pick one former Texan to join D'Amico Ryan's on this coaching staff, who's it going to be, and what position wow. are they filling? Because I, I think there's a couple. I think there's a couple good choices, um, and I'll let you go first, and and then um, after that we can kind of wrap it up. But I do think, in my opinion, there's at least a couple good choices um, for that opportunity. Um, I think that's that's a hard one. Uh, I when I'm thinking of it, really, if I go former Texans, I might go with somebody like. Uh, if of course, if you can coax them out of television, Ryan Fitzpatrick or, or something like that as a quarterback coach, not as a supporter. Okay. Um, maybe a Matt yeah. Shaw, but I don't know about, you know, I'm not as sure about that. It depends on the offensive coordinator. I think if, I think if you get uh, Clint Kubiak, I think, I think Shaw would be an interesting quarterback coach. But I in think that in scenario. both cases, you're talking about guys who are very smart, particularly in Fitzpatrick's case. A very bright guy. Um, played everywhere. I mean, I don't know if there's a team in the league he didn't play for. So you're talking about a guy who knows right. probably every offensive system, every coaching you know tree, so to speak. I mean, he could sit there. He could run probably the West Coast offense. He could run, you know, any offense, any offensive system you could think of that's been run in the last 20 years. He he's probably played under. And so he's a guy, I think, you know, and, and he's a guy that you sit there and say he got more out of what he had, seventh round pick, more out of what he had than just about anybody else. And so I, I'd like a guy like that. You know, now if I'm looking in Houston sports history, I'd want like a Munchak or a Bruce Matthews to coach the offensive line. Uh, and I know Munchak, you know, has been on that level uh, because I think with a guy like Kenyon Green, the guy just needs, he needs good direction. He needs a good center next to him who's not a backup center uh, because your starting center had soft retirement or whatever you want to call it. Um, he needs a good center next to him, a veteran center, because he's going to have that veteran tackle next to him. But he needs a guy that can sit there and say, okay, I've done this. You know, here's how you get your body right. Here's how, you know, the technique you need. He needs somebody like that. I think I think Fitzpatrick's a great call. Uh, I, I heard a great story about him not too long ago. His last season in Miami, um, he spent the whole week doing no preparation. His last week of the season, skipped all the meetings, 
didn't, you know, he was two was going to be the guy that week, but he knew there was a chance he could get called in off the bench. But he, he said, I don't want to do anything to prepare this week just to test myself because there's a chance next year when I retire, I'm going to get a phone call when someone gets hurt. And I want to see if I can handle that. I want to see if I can step in after doing it. And he goes in and he, he gets the win in the second half after replacing Tua. And he's like, okay, if, if someone wants to call me after I retire, I know I'm, I'm going to be capable of filling that role. So I, I think you're right on Fitzpatrick. I think he'd be great for a young quarterback. Um, let me throw a couple names at you here and, and see what you think. I think special teams, I'd love a, a Shane Lickler. I think he would be a, a, a great special teams assistant. The guy, one of the best punters of all time. Uh, went to Texas A&M, enjoyed his time in Houston. I think uh, that would be a great one for the Texans. We'll see. You know, it's punting. I think the main one I would love to see is Brian Cushing as linebackers coach. I think that one is one that would excite the city of Houston. I think Cushing um, was a phenomenal middle linebacker when he had the time, but he also played outside linebacker uh, when he was first coming into the league. So he's got that versatility. Uh, he was a great coverage guy. That's you know the reason we let D'Amico go was moving Cushing aside because he was a better coverage linebacker before the knee injuries than D'Amico was. Um, I, I think Brian Cushing, as your linebacker's coach, would be a home run hire. Well, you know, he's opinion. already in the building. Uh, that's the advantage. I think mm-hmm. he's uh, he's in, in kind of a training, you know, weight training capacity. Uh, just making sure guys aren't overtrained. If we could do that, you know, that would be great. Um, it's interesting that Brian Cushing is the guy that you chose to make sure guys don't overtrain with weights. If you've ever seen any of his pictures at USC, him and Ray Malaluga next to each other were just mountains well, and for of those muscle. Who are not getting the reference. He, he tested positive for PEDs, and his excuse was, Twice. "I was overtrained." That was that was the working excuse, and then Bob McNair backed him up on it. So, but yeah, I think Brian Cushing's a good pick. Uh, Shane Leckler, I don't know so much about that because I, you know. I don't know how much involved punters get in the whole breakdown of special teams coverage packages and things like that. But I think just situational punting is where a guy like Leckler could sit with a young punter and say, hey, look, you know, in this scenario, this time of the game, we're going to kick it down and, and, you know, it's going to be a little shorter kick, but we're sidelining this one. Or, hey, you know, in this scenario, just boot it. Give it everything you got. Get the yardage. I think that's where a guy like Leckler could really help. Uh, you know, Cam Johnson was okay. There was nothing wrong with him last year. But Texas have had some pretty good punters in their franchise history. You know, Cam Johnson, to me, ranks towards the bottom of those well, guys. Well, I mean, how important is punting really in the grand scheme of things? Yeah. And the Texans, and the Texans franchise, well, pretty, yeah, yeah. pretty important. Get, sadly, get plenty of business at least. So that's that's for, that's for sure. But yeah. I think, um, yeah, I mean, as far as a guy to come into camp, yeah, I mean, sure, why not? Um, I don't think he'd be on top of my list. I mean, to me, punting. If if you're if you're sitting there saying the key to our season this year is we got to get really good at punting, I'd be worried about you as a coaching staff. Yeah, it's not going to be a good year. Not going to be a good year if the punter is the top of the priority. I'm just, you know, as we looked for former Texans that could come back. Um, and then who was the center? I'm trying to remember off top. Uh, when the when the Texans were good with Schaub, we had 
Uh, no, McKinney was a tackle because he went to clear like high but school. There was another McKinney that was the center, I think. You um, might be right yeah, on I, that one because uh, I graduated with the tackle McKinney. Uh, he was in my graduating class, but yes. um, you know, and another guy uh, who was a guy that uh, played tackle for them ended up being the head of the NFLPA for a while. Um, God, I can't think of his name. Oh. Uh, you have Wade Davis. Um, Wade Davis would be a good one. So he's definitely in town. I mean, he he fills in every now and then. I would love, and that's where, to me, the offensive line. They have had some really awful. Yeah, Chris Myers. Chris Myers. They, they, they've had some awful offensive line coaches. I mean, since Kubiak left, Bill O'Brien didn't hire a single good one. And there was a and there was no. a guy and, uh, that they had before uh, this last one, uh, Warlock, uh, that was just horrible. Like four years in a row, and everybody's like, "Get a new guy, you're terrible." But because and that's where you know I kind of push back on the whole. We have a sucky offensive line. I think we've had sucky schemes. I think we've had sucky coaching. I don't think we've had a sucky offensive line. I think your center was a backup center and was terrible. PFF graded dead ass last. Okay, let's replace him. Yeah. But I think if you got Kenyon Green some coaching, Ken wasn't horrible. You got your two tackles. I mean, those tackles, I mean, and I don't know that uh, they, I think, combined gave up less than five sacks this year. Which, if you look at ta- uh, tackle tandems around the league, that is unbelievably good. Unbelievable. Yeah, tackle play was tackle play was and, fantastic for the Texans. And I and think that's... you know you're you're dead on right about the, the pressure in the middle. That's because Kenyon Green they had to practically platoon him with Justin McCray because he could not pass block. He could not pass block. It was a good run blocker. So to me, if you can be a good run blocker, if you're physical enough to be a good run blocker, you should be able to pass protect. So yeah, that's absolutely. a technique thing. That's a coaching thing. That's a what are we asking you to do thing. And I think the best thing that we heard from, from D'Amico Ryans was the fact that he sat there and said, I am going to put players in position where they could succeed. And, and he mentioned Derek Stingley specifically. I'm going to put him in in positions where he can make plays. And that's the thing. And any good coach will tell you at, at, at any level. I mean, if I'm going to sit there, you know, with my junior high team and I, and I've got, you know, all these scrawny players and I'm sitting there going to go, I'm going to run power football. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, the thing right. is you look at your players, you sit there and say, what are they good at? Let's do that. And I would rather, you know, you mentioned the Gary Kubiak bootleg, but for a while, nobody was stopping it. So to me, it's like, I'm going to keep doing this until you stop it. So I want this team offensively, defensively, sit there and say, this is who we are. This is what we're going to do. Stop it. We dare you. We did. I love it. I mean, the problem was the Bill O'Brien era was like, okay, what's the defense going to do against us this week? Bullshit. If you want to run the football, you have a mentality that we're going to run the football, and that's what we're going to do. I don't care what the defense does. Stack eight, nine in the box. Who cares? We're just going to hit you in the mouth. We're going to run the football. That's the attitude you got to have. If you're going to sit there and say, we're going to throw it around the yard, 
Okay, great. Put in five defensive backs, six defensive backs. I don't care. That's what we're going to do. We're going to throw it around the yard. You're going to have to beat us. But you got to pick whatever you do best, and you got to do that. And that's what I liked about the Kubiak offense. Kubiak offense, a lot of people complained about how simple it was, you know, how repetitive it was. It was effective. With the balance of his tenure, he was effective. So it, it was effective when when we have the lead and we're running the ball well. I think, you know, when you had to throw from behind, that's when um, the Kubiak offense really showed its flaws. But as long as you could run the ball, you could work that offense because Matt Schaub sold the Matt Schaub sold the handoff better than almost anybody in the NFL. You know, Matt Schaub before the Liz Frank injury was one of the better quarterbacks off the boot that yeah, you're ever going to find. It, well, the thing uh, is, is like you sitting there saying we're, we're behind and we have to throw the football. Tell me an offense at any level that says, you know what we want to do? We want to get down 31 to 10 and have to throw the football. I mean, what's right, going to look good there? No, but if, if you put, you know, Kansas City's offense on the field down 21 points, they're still yeah. in it, right? Like they still feel like they got a shot versus if you put the Texans down 21 points at, you know, 20, 20, 10, 2010 Texans team, the best that they'd ever been. You put them down two touchdowns, 14 points in the second half. Did they have the firepower on offense to throw their way back in the game? And I, and I think the answer was no, because even when the Texans were built at their best, they had one legitimate wide receiver in Andre Johnson. The number two pass catcher on that offense was the tight end. And then the number three option was your halfback out of the backfield. So that team, that offensive scheme, yes, it was it was good 85% of the time. And I think most, you know, we've seen the same similar scheme updated a little bit with the 49ers. And I think that's a better version of it. I think where Kubiak got to once he started working with Kyle Shanahan because we saw that offense work just fine with the Broncos on the way to the Super Bowl. I think with the right, and also too, you know, Schaub wasn't Manning. Who knows Who knows what happens if, if Gary Kubiak doesn't say, no, Schaub's my guy, I don't want Peyton Manning, and Peyton comes to Houston instead of going to Denver because that was a real possibility yeah, for a little bit there. And I, I think if you go back to like those 2009, 2010 Texans, I think you'd actually be surprised if you look back at some of those games. Because I think 2010 in particular, um, that defense, and I, and I think if that, re- that season I remember in particular was just a huge comedy of errors on defense. That was the game where Jacksonville wins on a Hail Mary. Um, that was 09. 09 was the year that was a comedy of errors on defense where the, that was uh, – Arian's first year, he put up huge numbers. Shaw put up huge numbers, and then just ridiculous stuff kept happening on defense. Uh, that was, was a one, game uh, against Washington. It was Kareem Jackson's first year that year was was two thousand nine first year I think uh, because he was terrible as a, as a rookie. No, you're right. You're right. Game, and I want to say it was two thousand ten. Two, you're right. 2011. You're, I had my. I was year behind. 2010. The Texans went six and ten, put up huge numbers on offense, but were terrible on defense. You're right. And then 2011 was the year that they brought yeah. in Wade Phillips yeah. um, and completely yeah. turned that defense around. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think there was a game against Washington. I want to say it was that year. Yeah. That's the one that they won right. the last second, where 
Andre Johnson caught the touchdown and spiked it with like yeah, two seconds left. Yeah, that one was a come-from-behind victory. Uh, that was a pretty big deficit. Yes. So, I mean, I think you're selling some of the Kubiak offenses short, but I think, you know, I think your point is taken is that, you know, in terms of personnel, they didn't quite have it. And I think, you know, when you look at uh, the 49ers now, I think uh, you could maybe put Debo Samuel um, as a weapon on a similar level of Andre Johnson. Andre Johnson is a better wide receiver. But Debo Samuel yes. can do more things than Andre Johnson could. Um, George Kittle yes. is better than anything Owen Daniels ever did in his career. Um, uh, Owen Daniels is a really good blocker. I don't know if Kittle's. I don't know if his blocking is there, but as offensively, a receiver, as a Kittle all day. And then um, all day, I think. Ayuk is better than anything we ever had as a number two. Jennings, who's their three, is better than Kevin well, Walter ever was, or Jacoby and Jones. Yeah, and Christian McCaffrey. Not I don't I don't I'd say that's yeah, equal to Arian. Well, I was gonna say Arian was a better running running back. Arian was a great but catcher I think of the Christian ball. McCaffrey, if you look at you know, his career, probably better than than Foster as a receiver. I don't know, just because if you, and this is all hypothetical, but if you gave Arian the same amount of catches that Christian McCaffrey had, right? If you if he was the focal point of the offense the way that McCaffrey was in, in, in Carolina, I, I truly, in my heart of hearts, believe Arian puts up similar numbers. Arian was an unbelievable catcher of the ball. It's just most of his catches were screens out of the backfield. He didn't get a lot of route running opportunity until Bill O'Brien got there. And then Bill O'Brien kind of moved him around the field a little bit more. In that last year that Arian was, was in the Texans offense before going to Miami, you saw a lot of pass catching ability yeah, out of Arian I think Foster. the hubris of, of Kubiak in that system uh, is that they think they can get by. With a lesser quarterback, they think they can get by with the Garoppolo. They think they can get by with the Shab. They think they can get by uh, with Purdy. Um, I mean, they obviously traded up for Lance. That hasn't worked so far. Um, but I think, yeah, when you that was probably the one decision in Texas history. If you could do do a do over, is getting Peyton Manning in here? Because you know the thing is, is that the great quarterback, and and you've heard D'Amico talk about this. He's mentioned it. It unlocks the defense, uh, particularly if you get one that's mobile, uh, which obviously Peyton Manning was not mobile. But Peyton Manning is probably the smartest quarterback that's that's ever lived. Um, I think you know if you he could be his own offensive coordinator, and I think, but so that makes him able to make plays, especially you know before his last year when they actually won the Super Bowl and he was not good physically. Um, when he was at his physical best, he could make plays that other quarterbacks could not because he could see it schematically and, and in real time it can do it. The problem is, and that's and and that goes back to the quarterback question, is that you know the Texans are gonna be in the same quarterback hell, and at least they're not in I have a high paid quarterback hell. I mean, imagine if you're in Dallas right now. I mean, is Dak Prescott gonna get you to a Super Bowl? I don't know. I don't right. know. And but forty million a year, you're saying, yeah, he better be the guy. Yeah, you're not you're not wrong there. 
you know, the Texans are, they're not in a good place quarterback-wise, but they, they could be worse. And, and uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see and, and see how those draft uh, projections come in and, and pro days and all that other stuff. But um, I think now's about as good as time of ever to, to wrap this thing up. I know it's been quite a winding road we've been on, starting from the spread of fascism to America all the way to um, possible Texans coaching hires. But it's been a fun podcast as always uh real quick scott why don't you tell everybody uh, how to read some of your work and the in the time between now right, and our next you show head to the hall of fame index.com and so when i said we we're talking about fascism i am starting a series on fascism so i'm going to look at those 14 planks and i'm going to do a kind of a deeper dive into each of those uh so you know definitely check that out i'm also on uh, battle red blog you know writing about your texans so you can catch me there as well and you can find me as always at Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. Uh, and I would like to recommend real quickly to any of our listeners um, who are interested in, in learning a little bit more about fascism and some of the history of fascism. Obviously, um, Scott's going to have some great information there. But I do want to point some people in uh, the direction of one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, they did a subsect. It, the, the show is called Behind the Bastards. Um, they actually have a special series uh, called Behind the Insurrections, and it is mostly about um, right-wing insurrections that were successful in a lot of different countries that led to fascism. So uh, there's one on um, the Munich Beer Hall Putsch with uh, Adolf Hitler. There's one on the Rise of the Black Shirts in Italy, and there's actually a fantastic episode on Gabriel D'Annunzio, uh, who was what some consider the first true fascist uh, as he took a group of World War I veterans and just occupied an island on his own, even though the Italian government asked him to leave. He said, no, thank you. So some really great information out there. If you want to learn more about fascism, uh, I highly recommend Behind the Insurrections. Uh, it's by Robert Evans. It's available on all the um, podcast apps. And that's where I get a lot of the information I have. Um, on those topics. So as always, we appreciate everyone joining us. We look forward to having you next week. We'll be back on our normal Tuesday record Wednesday release schedule. We apologize for being a day behind this week, but we'll get back at it next week. Scott, anything you want to add before we hop out? Nah, that's good. Awesome. Well, we'll see everybody next week. We appreciate you staying with us. You've been listening to the snap hook. Bye.